Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Alexandra Otolia Baird, and today I'll be talking to Jessica White about her new book, Morals of the Market, Human Rights and the Rise of Neoliberalism, published by Verso in 2019. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alexandra. It's great to be here. Well, the book is a really fascinating and truly important contribution to the field, and I'm, I'm so excited to explore it with you today. But before we begin, can I ask you to just tell us a little bit about yourself and how the book really came about? Okay, well, look, the book was a long time in development, and it certainly, I think when I started, I wouldn't say that it was the book that it ended up being. But the concerns that animated the book about the politics of human rights and then about neoliberalism and the relationship between human rights and neoliberalism came out of earlier work that I'd been doing, partly on the philosophy of Michel Foucault and partly on the development of humanitarian intervention or the right to intervene. And I had become particularly interested in Foucault's own writings about human rights, but also his activist engagements with the language of human rights, and in particular with the sort of early Médecins Sans Frontières milieu and with the development of the idea of the right to intervene. So I was really struck by the way that in the 1970s, Foucault, who was renowned as an anti-humanist, a a critic of humanism, began to mobilise the language of human rights. And it struck me later when Foucault's lecture series on neoliberalism, The Birth of Biopolitics, came out, that there was this interesting relationship there where Foucault was making an argument in his work on government and governmentality that every sort of paradigm of government had a sort of correlative uh, counterconduct or art of not being governed, which drew on many of the same elements uh, in order to contest government and to open up sort of spaces of freedom or spaces of not being governed so much as he called it. But it struck me that while he was very prescient in his account of early neoliberalism, Um, was one of the first scholars really to recognise this as a significant development within neoliberalism and to devote significant intellectual attention to it, that he never really considered the counterconducts that were appropriate to neoliberalism or that drew on the same elements um, as neoliberalism. And that this was interesting given that at the same time he was identifying this new striking form of interventionist human rights discourse. So I was writing about these questions and really it led me into a real interest in trying to better understand the development of human rights politics and the rise of a distinctive form of human rights politics from the 1970s. And it was around this time that Samuel Moyne published his uh, history, revisionist history of human rights, The Last Utopia, Uh, human rights in history, which made the argument that human rights really only emerged in the 1970s, the seemingly completely counterintuitive argument that not only was it not with the French Revolution, nor was it with the sort of 1948 Universal Declaration that human rights came to prominence, but it was really only in the 1970s in the wake of the decline of other sort of more powerful utopias such as communism or anti-colonialism. And so I was really struck by and interested in this focus on the 1970s, but also frustrated by the way that the story of the relationship between human rights and neoliberalism, which also became sort of became prominent from the same period, was often being told. So while many scholars noted a historical coincidence or perhaps even a compatibility between human rights and neoliberalism, there's very little discussion of what the neoliberal thinkers actually thought about human rights. And these two movements, these two revivals or reinventions of liberalism tended to be talked about as if they were self-evidently distinct and discrete projects and that the task therefore was to think about how they were or were not related. 
um, at its most sort of extreme form. There was the assumption that neoliberalism was sort of the catchphrase for everything bad in the world and human rights the name for everything good in the world. And there were obviously far more sophisticated versions of this attempt to relate the two but the vast majority of them presupposed that the question was one of relating an economic discourse on the one hand to a moral or political discourse on the other. And as I went about researching this question, I became increasingly dissatisfied with this framing of the problem and began to think that actually this relationship between human rights and neoliberalism was far more intricate and that the, the two were far more uh, part of a single story than we often imagine. And we're certainly going to come back to that single story um, in a little bit. But before we do, Jessica, can I ask you to just outline the general structure and progression um, of the book to to listeners? Certainly. So the book um, begins with this problem of the relationship between human rights and neoliberalism and asks how we can understand the two. And it starts from what I talk about as a sort of a double coincidence. And while, as I mentioned, many people had noticed that the prominence of a NGO-driven interventionist politics of human rights really came about in the 1970s at the same time as the rise of neoliberalism, there'd been far less scholarly attention paid to the fact that in 1947, when Friedrich Hayek, the Austrian neoliberal economist, established the Mont Pelerin Society, which became what Philip Morovsky's called the Neoliberal Thought Collective, that at this very same time, the human rights delegates were meeting at Lake Success in order to develop what became the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So I was really fascinated by the fact that these two uh, projects really had this simultaneous birth and both came to prominence in different ways at around the same time. But obviously, enormous amount happened in between that. So what I do in the first chapter is look at the language of civilization. And I look particularly at the statement of aims of the neoliberal Montpelerin society, which began with the claim that the central values of civilization are in crisis. And so what I want to do there is show that the neoliberals conceptualised the problem that they were facing, not simply as an economic problem of the rise of socialism or of social democracy, but they saw the problem as a threat to the entirety of civilization, or what they often called Western civilization. So what I do in that chapter is really draw out this neoliberal account of civilization. And I show that this account was inextricably economic, moral, and racial. And so they developed this hierarchical idea about Western civilization as being a civilization that was characterized, among other things, by the superior, its superiority in developing competitive markets. So one of the things that I'm really interested in in the book is the argument that particularly Friedrich Hayek makes, but it's there throughout many of the the neoliberal thinkers who develop an evolutionary account of morality. Hayek himself talks about um, the transition from what he calls uh, a tribal morality or the morals of the small band to the morals of the market. So that's where I take this uh, this phrase, the morals of the market, that gives the book its title. And for Hayek, this was a transition from an egalitarian morality, which was focused on the development of shared ends um, and collective purposes, from that morality to a morality which fostered individual and familial responsibility, submission to the impersonal results of the market, that tolerated high levels of inequality and that thought that it was just that people were rewarded for their efforts in ways that generated high levels of inequality. So I show that actually neoliberalism was underpinned by this whole argument about the development of civilization, where civilizational development was the development towards a competitive market society. 
So I look at the way that the neoliberals of the mid-20th century saw the rise of socialism and social democracy and the welfare state as what Hayek called a, a return to suppressed primordial instincts, so a regression to this supposedly tribal morality. And then I compare this to what was happening at the time during the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and I show that in that forum, the language of civilization and the civilizational hierarchies that it was bound up with was really under attack. So I trace there the process by which the language of civilization, the language of civilized nations, was ultimately expunged from early drafts of the Universal Declaration by those who argued that these kind of civilizational hierarchies were an anachronism and that a universal human rights document needed to find a new path, needed to move away from this language of civilization. So this is sort of what I do in the first chapter, trace this language of civilization. But I then move on to what the neoliberals saw as the key barrier to civilization, which was the rise of uh, social welfare, social democracy, forms of social obligation. And there, what I want to show against the dominant conception of neoliberalism as a strictly economic doctrine, I want to show that, in fact, the neoliberals were very suspicious of the very idea of the economy. And I look here at the way that various neoliberal thinkers talked about the roots of the word economy in the Greek oikos or household and argued that thinking of the market order as an economy created the false impression that the economy had a single set of ends and should be oriented towards the, the collective well-being of its participants. And Hayek, again, was particularly emphatic about the fact that the market order was not an economy, that none of us are members of some collective that owes us anything in the way of social welfare. So the neoliberals were very concerned about social and economic rights, which they saw as writing large this idea of the economy as a deliberately made organisation or household with an obligation to secure the welfare of its members. But I also show by looking at the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and particularly its social and economic rights, that in fact the social and economic rights in the Declaration turned out to be far less threatening to the market order than the neoliberals feared. And that in fact, particularly at the um, through the lobbying of the United States, but many other delegations too, these rights were conceived not as absolute entitlements that would create obligations on the state, but rather as flexible standards, which would always be compatible with individual and familial responsibility for welfare, and that would not interfere with an extended market order. So having looked at social and economic rights, I then move on um, forward in history somewhat and to the debates about colonialism that really shaped um, the human rights process and particularly the later human rights covenants and that was also really central to neoliberalism. And I think one of the most original aspects of this chapter and something that is not often commented on is the important strand of anti-colonial thought within neoliberalism. And essentially for the neoliberals, there was an argument that was developed by numerous thinkers across the 20th century, um, but most one of the most prominent among them was Alexander Rousteau, uh, that colonialism and imperialism was a relic of a sort of feudal era of violence and politics and that the best way to overcome uh, colonialism was simply to institute free markets so that no one would ever have to use violence in order to secure the raw materials that they required. So this was in fact an argument that was made very early by the Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, uh, who framed himself as a defender of uh, free trade against colonial empires. But it must be noted that Mises, like many others, always accepted the uh, 
the British Empire, which he saw as a great empire of free trade that had ruled in the interests of all humankind. But I show that when the neoliberals were actually faced with rising anti-colonial movements, they initially saw that this could give them a possibility to separate off anti-colonialism from communism. This was particularly Alexander Rusto's uh, response to the Bandung Conference, which he saw as a real opportunity for neoliberals. But the dominant position was quite otherwise, and that was a real fear that anti-colonial liberation movements would challenge not only um, political domination, but would also challenge the economic relations of the colonial period and that would particularly upset the role of former colonies in an international division of labour. So I look at the way that the neoliberals became increasingly panicked about anti-colonialism and started dedicating themselves to ways to secure new standards of civilization, ways to ensure that post-colonial societies were unable to break with their existing positions within an international division of labour. I then move on further to Chile and to the Pinochet coup and the role of neoliberals uh, in supporting the Pinochet regime and also the role of human rights NGOs in Chile at the time. And there I want to show that the kind of moral framework that I've identified in earlier European neoliberals in particular, in the Austrian school and in the German auto-liberals, also played a central role in Chicago school economic thought, which is often conceived as the paradigmatic, positivist, economistic form of neoliberalism. And I start with uh, Arnold Harberger, who was the Chicago school figure who was responsible for running the Chile program, which trained generations of Chilean economists in uh, Chicago school neoclassical economics. And there was a moment in the 80s where he spoke at a conference and he said that the main barrier to good economics in Latin America were cultural. And he said that Latin Americans have this predilection for romanticism and self-pity and an unwillingness to simply submit to whatever the market doles out to them as though it were fate. And he said this is a real dilemma for freedom-loving individuals because the best way to get people, he used the words, to think their way out of this romanticism was through military governments. But he recognised that military governments sort of had some problems as far as questions of freedom were concerned. But one of the things that I try to do in the chapter is show that whereas much current critical scholarship on neoliberalism in Chile in particular has accepted that the neoliberals essentially saw their economic recipes as completely unrelated to the violence, the torture, the disappearances of the junta, that they saw these as what Naomi Klein following Orlando Latelia talks about as entirely unrelated. I want to suggest that, in fact, they were quite explicit about the very strong relations between economic freedom and political freedom, and that they were in many cases very willing to celebrate uh, the actions of the Pinochet regime in bringing about what they talked about as greater freedom. And so Hayek, for instance, at one point was asked uh, about conditions and freedom in Chile, and he said he was unable to find anyone who didn't agree that freedom was greater under Pinochet than it had been under Allende. Now, on the one hand, faced with a brutal dictatorship that was torturing and disappearing uh, anyone who opposed it in any way, um, we could dismiss this as pure cynicism. But what I want to suggest is that actually it tells us something significant about how the neoliberals understood what freedom was. So I devote a lot of space in that chapter to really examining the neoliberal account of freedom and their understanding of the relationship between economic freedom and political freedom. And I show that while human rights NGOs were very important in this period in contesting specifically the torture that was carried out by the Pinochet regime, that they never contested the economic uh, policies that were being implemented using this torture, 
Um, but more than that, they had a tendency to associate the problems of the Pinochet regime with lawlessness or impunity, which meant that when this regime became particularly focused on constitutional reform and implementing a new constitution in order to lock in and secure um, the economic transformations, that they tended to view this as a sort of progressive movement back towards law and order. And what I want to suggest instead is that drawing on thinkers as diverse as Hayek himself and the German auto-liberals, figures like Wilhelm Rapke, that Chilean figures on the right saw constitutionalism as a way to secure the economic reforms and depoliticize Chilean society, a way precisely to break with that romanticism that people like Harberger had seen as the central pathology of Latin American societies and the barrier to good economics. So then my final chapter um, turns to the early 1980s and it looks at the way that um, human rights NGOs and humanitarian NGOs embraced certain neoliberal themes. So my focus in that chapter in particular is on uh, a foundation called Liberty Sans Frontieres, which was established by the French leadership of Medicine Sans Frontieres in order quite explicitly to challenge third worldism within the aid sector. Now, third worldism, as it was called at that time, was associated with the demand for post-colonial economic redistribution for forms of reorganising the international economy in the wake of uh, colonialism in order to compensate and correct the deep inequalities of colonial exploitation. And one of the high points of this Third Worldist project was the demand for the new international economic order, which was a wide-scale program for economic reorganisation, for the um, regulation of multinational corporations, for technology transfers, for forms of um, consumer power to ensure that uh, producers in the former colonies were able to get the best prices for their products on the market and were no longer forced to simply play the role of the exporters of raw materials that they'd always played under colonialism. So I show that the figures associated with Medicine Sans Frontieres at the time explicitly went to war on the new international economic order and on this entire third worldist economic agenda. And that in doing so, they, on the one hand, uh, explicitly drew on the thought of neoliberal thinkers. So their first colloquium, one of its major speeches was given by Lord Peter Bauer, who's the most important development economist um, to emerge from the neoliberal Montpelieran society and who had for many decades campaigned against economic aid and in favour of uh, free market policies um, in relation to former colonies. Um, so they drew explicitly on Bauer's work, but more than that, they drew on a whole set of themes uh, that had been developed by neoliberal thinkers in their discussions about colonialism since the 1950s. The argument that um, demands for wealth redistribution and for foreign aid were products of colonial guilt, that in fact the West had nothing to be guilty about because colonialism had in fact benefited or improved former colonies. Um, and an argument that what former colonies needed was an adequate uh, legal and moral order in order to secure private property, the rights of investors, and market freedoms. So I show how the humanitarians took up these arguments in the context of a polemical struggle against anti-colonial demands for economic redistribution. And I show that in doing so, they helped ideas which had been staples of neoliberal discourse for decades cross over um, and come out of simply the terrain of the right and start to become a common sense amongst progressives who had become concerned about violence in the third world or in former colonies. Um, and that in particular, they made... Uh, 
an argument for moving the focus off structural economic conditions, off international forms of exploitation, and putting the focus much more explicitly onto the violence of the leaders of post-colonial states. And human rights provided a very important tool for this shift of focus away from the relations of the global economy and strictly onto the supposedly purely internal or domestic problems of uh, violent post-colonial leaders and states. So that's a sort of general overview of, uh, of what the book does. So the book then opens with a really powerful account of the political debate in the aftermath of the Grenfell fire, which I think you use to highlight the different conceptions of human rights. Um, and then you go on to proceed, you proceed, sorry, to outline your thesis, much of which rests on your assertion that we need to think about neoliberalism as more than just an economic doctrine, as you've already made clear. Do you think you could give listeners who are perhaps less familiar with neoliberalism um, an overview of how it's been traditionally viewed and how in your book you are really reconceptualizing it and its relationship with human rights? Sure, yeah, of course. Um, there are numerous strands of understanding neoliberalism, but I think the dominant strand has been to understand it primarily as a sort of an economic phenomenon. So as the dominance of the economy over every other sphere of life, um, as a sort of set of ideas or a political rationality, um, and people differ on which of those it is, but that in the words of the political theorist Wendy Brown, constructs a human always and everywhere as homo economicus. So this idea that neoliberalism is strictly about creating economic subjects has been a really important strand of sort of early work on neoliberalism. It was something also that for all their um, prescience, Foucault's lectures on neoliberalism tended also to assume that neoliberalism was an amoral doctrine, that it treated the the subject, say the criminal, simply as a homo economicus who made decisions about the costs and benefits of committing a crime, for instance. And Foucault saw the potential that this was a sort of a break with earlier forms of moralism and earlier normalising forms of response to um, penal practice, for example. So I think this idea of neoliberalism as a strictly economic doctrine is one that has been quite important, particularly in earlier work on neoliberalism, and one that I really wanted to challenge. Uh, because once I really got into both reading some of the central neoliberal thinkers, but also doing research in the archives of the Neoliberal Montpelleron Society, what I found was both, as I mentioned, that many of these thinkers were very suspicious about the very idea of the economy, but also that they were deeply concerned with questions of morality, with the moral foundations of an economic order or a competitive market order, uh, and also with the legal regimes that such an order required. So I think that one of the things that was particularly surprising was how much they actually lent on and actually developed ideas about human rights. We find recourse to the language of individual rights, uh, rights of man, fundamental rights, and later the language of human rights right through neoliberal thinkers. And in many cases, they see these rights as being self-evidently the counterpart of a liberal competitive market order and as necessary in order to secure a private domain in which individuals will be free both from the pressures of mass politics uh, and from the interventions of a state into the economy. So before we move on to discuss chapter one, could you give listeners just a little background on, on two of the very important groups you've already mentioned that, um, that feature in the book? So this is namely on the one hand, the, the Montpellerin Society, and then on the other, the UN Commission on Human Rights. Sure. Um, so 
Yes, first the Montpelerin Society was founded by Friedrich Hayek in 1947 uh, and it was founded explicitly as an attempt to try to revive or reanimate liberalism in the hostile circumstances of the mid-20th century and one of its central animating contentions was that in order to revive liberalism, it was necessary to free it from earlier associations with laissez-faire and with the idea that the market should simply be left alone. And so from the very beginning, the neoliberals of the Montpelerin Society were particularly concerned with questions of the institutional and legal preconditions for a market order. And as I suggest, they were also particularly concerned with questions of the moral conditions in which competitive markets would flourish. Hayek, for instance, said that there was no doubt that the wrong kind of morals could destroy a civilization. And he believed that his own civilization was being destroyed by a moral framework that licensed ideas of collective establishment of ends and egalitarianism at the expense of individual initiative and responsibility. And so this grouping, the Montpelerin Society that he brought together, initially it was uh, broad in its disciplinary focus. It involved philosophers, historians, as well as economists, Um, but it was very uh, narrow in its geographical focus. It was made up of Europeans and people from the United States. There was one woman involved um, and it was, of course, explicitly for those who saw themselves as sort of liberal warriors of some form. Um, The the other grouping that I look at is the the drafters of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, And this was a process that also really began seriously in 1947. Um, And it involved in its sort of narrow form, the so-called Nuclear Committee, a set of figures like Eleanor Roosevelt of the United States, René Cassin, the French delegate, um, Charles Malik, uh, the Lebanese delegate, amongst others. Um, But in its broader form, I, I look at the drafting process in the United Nations, which involved at the time a significant diversity of states and political systems. So the Soviet Union participated quite enthusiastically in the early stages, even though they ultimately abstained from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, It involved states like Saudi Arabia. Um, It involved states with very different political, economic and religious systems. But it should be noted that those who were explicitly not involved and not included were all those people who lived in what were euphemistically referred to as non-self-governing territories um, under various forms of colonial rule. So, you know, that was well over half the world's population who had no involvement in the drafting of this supposedly universal declaration, which was something that became a much more significant question um, in the context of decolonization as numerous new states emerged and increasingly um, made an impact on the human rights process, particularly during the drafting of the human rights covenants almost two decades later. So have you, as you've already said, Chapter 1 focuses then on the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the discussions about what you call the language of civilization that surrounded both it and the Montpelerin Society. So could you tell us a little bit about how this language of civilization was tied into these quite distinct discussions and, and some of its effects? Mm, sure. Well, there's a sort of a common sense view that the human rights project was obviously a, a result of a sort of a collapse of Western civilization, a crisis of Western civilization that um, the World War II was emblematic of. Um, and I show that um, this document, the Universal Declaration, emerged at an interesting point, sort of on the cusp of decolonization. You had, for instance, the participation of delegates from both India and Pakistan uh, participating in this process. Um, And 
you had um, very interesting debates already beginning about this language of civilization. Now, as I show in the book, this was a language that was absolutely the bread and butter of the earlier League of Nations and particularly its mandate system which was all about what was called the sacred trust of civilization, about developing societies so that they would be able to stand on their own in the conditions of the modern world. Um, and I think for many of the colonial powers who turned up to the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, they simply assumed that this civilizing framework would also govern the development of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So they were very um, clear that these human rights should not apply to their colonies, although they went to all kinds of extraordinary labours to avoid saying that explicitly. Um, but they also, you know, constantly tried to incorporate references to civilised nations of the form that were very, very common in the League of Nations process. And it was the Soviet Union in particular that really um, challenged this language of civilization, arguing that this was an anachronism from the age of the Tsars, that this idea that there were civilized and less civilized people um, had, should be, I think, uh, one of the delegates said at one point, consigned to the dustbin of history. So there were significant arguments about the sort of the civilizational and the racial hierarchies that should animate this new uh, post-war world. And many delegates made the argument that if we were going to be talking about a universal declaration of the rights of all human beings, that this could no longer be a space for the kind of civilizational hierarchies that had been taken for granted um, in the League of Nations process. And these arguments about civilization and civilizational hierarchies, as well as about the application of human rights in the colonies, um, were in a way relatively mild at the time of the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But by the lead up to the drafting of the Human Rights Covenants, they had really intensified along with the increasing number of um, new post-colonial states such that when the Human Rights Covenants were adopted, the right of nations to self-determination was the first human right, something which by contrast is not present at all in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So that's some of the work that it did in this process and I'm particularly interested in the way that it was erased from the Human Rights Declaration at the very same time as the neoliberal thinkers were desperately trying to revive both the language of civilization and the idea that uh, civilization required a particular market order and it was this that needed to be defended. So for the neoliberals, as I mentioned, they were very convinced that the values of civilization are in danger, that they were in crisis. And it's worth noting, I mentioned the, the League of Nations process, but the key figure in the League of Nations mandate process, um, William Rappard, was also a founding member of the Montpelerin Society and a close friend of Hayek. And so he forms a bridge in many ways between the civilising work of the League of Nations and the mandates and the concerns of neoliberalism, which was similarly very much with how it was possible to ensure that former colonies developed in ways that were compatible with an international competitive market order. So as I mentioned, the idea of civilization for the neoliberals always had this racialized component where they were constantly uh, contrasting what Hayek would call tribal moralities with uh, market moralities, or Ludwig von Mises, who was often more explicit, would talk about the superiority of the white races and argue that this superiority was in large part a superiority in their ability to form market societies governed by extensive divisions of labour. And so there was always this slippage between economics and race in the way that the neoliberals understood the language of civilization. And what this enabled was that they could conceptualise markets and individual rights as part of a heritage of Western civilization 
that it was legitimate to impose on the world as a whole because supposedly this enabled the only form of civilization which could com- could possibly embrace all of humankind, which in their view was a civilization based on a competitive market order. So for the neoliberals, this language led to an interventionist kind of process, which was in many ways compatible or consistent with the earlier League of Nations mandate process, um, and which was very much about reshaping former colonies in order to ensure that they would fit neatly into the existing exploitative international economic order. So chapter two then proceeds to discuss social and economic rights and the rejection of welfareism by the neoliberals. Can you explain how um, neoliberalism um, and neoliberals perceived welfareism and, and why they thought of it as a threat to freedom and to individual rights? Sure. Well, this was really, um, there were two things. There was welfare and there was state planning that really to them were the key threats at the time um, to this civilization and this market order. Um, And they believed that what they were seeing was the transformation of market orders into these collectivist kind of household economies, which were taking upon themselves Uh, responsibility for the welfare of their citizens. And so the New Deal in the United States was an example of this. Um, In the UK, the the building of the welfare state was another obvious one. And they saw these on the one hand as heralding a breakdown of individual responsibility and also a breakdown of the family. Um, Wilhelm Röpke, the German auto-liberal who wrote significant amounts on this, was deeply concerned about this supposed breakdown of the family and argued that women in particular were the real losers from the welfare state because their natural role was in the home and the welfare state was disrupting that natural role by having the state usurp the role of the household in providing welfare. So there was this concern on the one hand with the breakdown of individual and familial responsibility, but there was also a concern about freedom and social peace. So they constantly made uh, associations between even very mild forms of state welfare and forms of totalitarianism. So in their view, any kind of state intervention into the economy that uh, messed with the competitive market order was a threat of totalitarianism. So Ludwig von Mises said, for instance, that the path may begin simply with a, a government that wants to make it easier for poor parents to buy milk for their children. But by intervening into the market, you set off this necessary concatenation of problems and slowly by surely, he said, totalitarianism on the model of national socialism emerges. So you see these quite hyperbolic uh, claims amongst the neoliberals that even minimal forms of welfare would completely destroy the market order and that you would be left with a situation in which people would be um, stripped of their independence and that they therefore would be governed like children by a paternalistic state that would deprive them both of responsibility and of freedom. So you've touched on it already, but I was really fascinated um, in this chapter by your section on conservative neoliberalism outside of the US context, which I think is perhaps less familiar to many people. Do you think you could give us um, an overview perhaps of the conservative moralism of of especially the German auto-liberals and its intellectual roots? Sure. Yeah, look, I think this is really important because the argument that I'm challenging in the book is largely, I think, drawn from a quite US-specific conception of what neoliberalism is. And in the United States, you do see a real problem um, of how to understand the convergence um, and the compatibility of the kind of um, 
strong family values, evangelical kinds of neoconservatism on the one hand, and then the thought of a figure like, say, the Chicago school's Becker, for instance, who argues that all marriage should be replaced with short-term contracts between individuals of any gender. So you really there do have this problem of how you relate this seemingly amoral, economistic neoliberalism to this social conservatism. But what I've tried to suggest is that if you look at the neoliberal movement more broadly, and particularly if you look at its uh, European figures who were there from the beginning, that social conservatism was no, in no way a sort of external um, feature that they had to make amends with, that actually these figures were themselves deeply conservative. And so, as you mentioned, I look particularly at uh, people like uh, Wilhelm Röpke and other figures associated with the German auto-liberals who were auto, they were very concerned with the question of order. Um, And what you see in those figures is this real terror of the rise of the masses. So they draw in part on uh, Ortega y Gasset, the revolt of the masses, and this idea that you have these sort of newly proletarianized masses who no longer know their place in society and they're sort of invading the gardens of civilization, as Rupke put it at one point, and they're trampling over all of the established moral order that has always governed that uh, that civilization. And so For them, things like family were absolutely central to the kind of values that liberals should be defending. They were very concerned about the breakdown of the family in the context of uh, the rise of state welfare. Um, They were also um, very concerned about this notion of the West and of a particular form of white supremacy. And so they really believed that um, they needed to defend Europe, a European heritage. And I think that these ideas are really important today because at a time when we're seeing once again the revival in many forms of this very explicitly sort of civilizationalist language um, and explicit defences of supposed Western civilization and European tradition, I think that there's a tendency to see all this as a break with neoliberalism. And I think that it's important to recognise these roots of this very conservative uh, strand of neoliberalism that was very much a central part of what organised neoliberalism was from the mid-20th century. Absolutely, and you do a wonderful job at showing just quite the Europeanness also of, of what we see so frequently as, a, as an American and US-based discourse. Um, but I'd like to move now to, to arguably one of the most important, um, and I think for listeners, really significant chapters, which is chapter three. And here you move on to the topic of colonialism, anti-colonial movements, neo-colonial mechanisms and post-colonial orders. So could I ask you to explain a little bit about this very complicated relationship between anti-colonialism, neo-colonialism and human rights and how neoliberals tried to really renegotiate what was a post-colonial world? Mm, Sure. Yeah, thank you. That's a good question. Uh, What I try to do is situate neoliberalism really in the context of decolonization and to trace their um, shifting understanding of and shifting relationship to both anti-colonial nationalism and then post-colonial states and nation-building projects. So I I look in particular at the way that at one level when we look at the transition from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which as I mentioned uh, was drafted when much of the world's population still lived under colonial rule and which did not uh, contain a right to self-determination. When we look at the path from there to the human rights covenants, it seems on the one hand to confirm some of those quite um, utopian and teleological understandings of the history of human rights for which human rights are constantly sort of cascading, as Lynn Hunt puts it, more and more excluded people take up 
the language of human rights and come to be included in a language that once excluded them. So on the one hand, we seem to get that sort of euphoric picture as we see all of these former, all of these representatives of former colonies during the debates about the human rights covenants, celebrating their participation in this universal human rights process and also celebrating the elevation of the right of nations to self-determination as the first human right. But I suggest that as this was taking place, numerous figures in former colonies were recognising that this new political sovereignty that they had achieved, often at significant costs, did not equate to real freedom or real self-determination. And I look particularly at Kwame Nkrumah, um, the first um, president of independent Ghana, and his account of neocolonialism. And this was, you know, the argument that he made that, in fact, colonialism hadn't gone away. It had just changed its guise and it now operated through forms of economic coercion which meant that the former colonies were still trapped within forms of domination. And I look at the way that the neoliberals really set themselves against this account of neocolonialism. For them, it was, you could talk about colonialism in terms of political domination when one state deprived another people of its sovereignty, but it was simply ludicrous to talk about colonisation in the economic sphere. So what the neoliberals set out to do was to challenge all of these uh, anti-colonial and post-colonial arguments about the exploitation that was inherent in the global economy and the way in which that exploitation actually replicated as well as drawing on the forms of domination that were central to the colonial period. And I show that the neoliberals challenged this argument, arguing that the market order was a realm of freedom that market relations were in fact peaceful, they were voluntary, they were non-coercive, and that in that sense they were in fact the alternative to colonialism. So for the neoliberals you had two choices and Ludwig von Mises again was very explicit about this. He said either you allow the most powerful nations to buy what they need on the free market or they're going to colonise you and you can't really complain if they do so if you don't give them the opportunity to buy what they need at the prices that they're prepared to pay. So the neoliberals really tried to reaffirm this sort of economic uh, order as freedom rather than as domination. But they recognised that in order to ensure that uh, former colonies continued to play the roles within the previous division of labour that had been assigned to them, that is primarily the role of producers and exporters of raw materials, often a single raw material, that if they were to continue to play this role, then it would be necessary to secure a, a moral and a legal order to ensure that those market relations would be protected. So that meant at its most basic, making sure that the rights of foreign investors were protected. And this did not just mean their property rights. It meant the whole sort of spectrum of civil rights that these people would need in order to carry out their business in former colonies um, unpested. So this attempt to develop standards to constrain post-colonial states and to ensure that they continued to play their assigned roles in an international division of labour was really central, I think, to the development of neoliberalism in the period of decolonisation. You then pivot in Chapter 4 to, as you've already uh, told us in such depth um, at the beginning of the interview, but you then pivot to examining the role of of neoliberal thinkers in Pinochet's Chile. And you start this chapter with a really startling account of an article written by Hayek for the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, which was rejected for its pro-Pinochet kind of outlook. Could you give listeners an overview of the debate that this event kind of instigated and then perhaps briefly just outline why it was that Hayek and other neoliberals really took such a radically different and unpopular stance um, on Pinochet? 
Yeah, sure. Well, yes, this is a really interesting moment where it was in 1977 that Hayek wrote this letter and um, he was really outraged that the newspaper refused to uh, to publish it and he wrote to protest what he saw as unfair international criticism of Pinochet's regime and interestingly he singled out Amnesty International talking about the fact that when he'd been invited to lecture in Chile under the Pinochet regime by his disciples, that he'd been bombarded but with letters uh, both from people he knew and from um, those associated with Amnesty International who had sent him documentation. Presumably he doesn't go into detail, but we can imagine that they would have sent him information about the torture regime being carried out under the dictatorship and calling on him to cancel his trip. And so I think this is a really interesting example, both of the fact that at that point Hayek was certainly associating uh, Amnesty International as the problem, um, interfering with this great um, market order, but it also shows how willing many of the neoliberal thinkers were to explicitly defend the regime of uh, Pinochet. So Hayek, in fact, referred to it as a miracle. Milton Friedman also referred to it not only as an economic but also as a political miracle. So I'm really interested in the way that these figures were, in fact, very ready to explicitly embrace Pinochet's regime and to actually see it as a source of pride that they were as involved as they were in uh, shaping and training many of the figures that ended up playing central roles both in the economic program and also in the attempt to develop the political and the constitutional order of the regime. And you give such a fascinating account of how you know, with these evolving international human rights organizations like Amnesty International that you've mentioned and the International Commission of Jurists and America's Watch and how they flourished and really were widely accepted by regimes like Pinochet's. And it's it's, it's so striking um, to read this in the book. But then you kind of build then on this topic and, and in Chapter 5, you then focus on Liberté Sans Frontières, which, as you've mentioned, was established out of the Médecins Sans Frontières in the 1980s. And you've, you've explained a little bit about what its agenda was and, and what it was kind of seeking to do. But a really important um, aspect that you then bring up is, is this concept of guilt um, when discussing the Liberté Sans Frontières. And could you just perhaps explain to us a little bit about how the idea of Western or, or colonial guilt factored into discussions on human rights in the 1980s and, and was really tied into um, the, the success and the evolution of these international human rights organisations? Yeah, sure. So this was a really central theme in the mid-80s around this Médecins Sans Frontières, Liberty Sans Frontières circle. And at this uh, early conference of uh, Liberty Sans Frontières on third worldism in question, Pascal Bruckner gave a speech there which was about precisely this question of challenging uh, colonial guilt. And he'd only recently written the book The Tears of the White Man, which framed all forms of sort of third world solidarity as being this expression of a sort of misplaced uh, guilt over colonialism. And Firstly, what these arguments enabled was uh, an assertive rejection of the kind of economic demands that were being made by representatives from former colonies, demands for forms of uh, compensation or reparations for colonialism. So these were framed as being simply manifestations of Western guilt. But what I really try to show is that these arguments that were raised in the mid-80s by the figures associated with this humanitarian milieu actually had a much, much longer lineage and had been really central features of 
neoliberal development discourse since the 1950s and that this argument about the need to combat colonial guilt had really become a central tenet of the neoliberal development discourse. And this was partly in response to Alexander Rusto's work because he did argue he was very unique amongst the neoliberals in arguing that colonialism was a succession of great crimes and from a a religious perspective that this was something that Christians should feel guilty about. And just on this matter, this question of Christianity was also very central to the conservatism of this strand of the auto-liberals who were very strong uh, believers in the need for Christianity to be central to Western civilization and to a market order. But this argument about guilt came to be framed in neoliberal circles as misplaced Catholic guilt um, and as something that needed to be moved beyond because it led to all kinds of concessions to former colonies and to those who had been colonised. And so what was really striking about this to me was to see these arguments that had been so central to neoliberal sort of processes of ideological clarification suddenly being taken up in circles that framed themselves as progressive and that really tried to appeal to people not simply on the right and not those who were concerned only with, say, liberal market orders, but to sort of well-meaning, concerned humanitarians more broadly who were exhorted to give up on their Western guilt and instead embrace the idea that liberal market orders were superior and were the form of international orders that should be promoted if people of former colonies were to prosper. Finally, I'd I'd like to turn to your conclusion because it's here that you really explore human rights, neoliberalism and economic inequality today. Um, And something that really struck me here is just how long human rights have been remarked on as being in a period of crisis. And I was wondering if you could just perhaps think or, or reflect a little bit on to what extent do you see this crisis as being very much built into the fabric of how we conceive human rights and what might a break with neoliberalism actually offer human rights discourse? Mm, Thank you. Um, That's a really good question. And you're right about this language of crisis. So I comment on uh, the way that by 1974, Lewis Henkin, who's the founder of contemporary human rights law, was already talking about the fact that human rights were in crisis. Interestingly, this is sort of about when um, contemporary scholars like Moyne would say that human rights were taking off. But for Henkin, the embrace of the language of human rights by anti-colonialists was a real problem, which created this crisis for the sort of the liberal rendering that he was more sympathetic to. So, look, I think I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot because one of the things that my book does is show that there were numerous different conceptions of human rights over the course of the 20th century and that the conception which the neoliberals promoted and, I argue, influenced and the conception which in many ways became dominant by the late 70s was never the only conception of human rights that existed, that the fact that anti-colonialists were able to frame the right of nations to self-determination as the key human right was very significant and signalled towards a different form of human rights politics. So I don't want to suggest that the dynamics that I'm talking about are sort of essential features of the use of the language of human rights, but nor do I want to suggest that this was just purely contingent, that any form of language or any form of political project can equally come to hegemony and frame itself as a human rights cause. I think particularly today that the human rights uh, infrastructure, in a sense, is so professionalised, so bureaucratised that there is such a, a strong sense that once you start talking the language of human rights, 
there's an existing convention, there's a set of experts, there's a process, um, that there is a sort of a congealing of a particular conception of human rights that makes it quite difficult to imagine alternatives in the language of human rights. And I think that some of the the things that the neoliberals really worked on and entrenched, and in particular the the dichotomy that I point to throughout the book between politics as supposedly violent and coercive on the one hand and market or civil societies as realms of distributed power and mutually beneficial voluntary relations. I think that that kind of dichotomy is very um, entrenched in contemporary human rights politics in ways that make it quite difficult to challenge forms of private power and private domination using the language of human rights. So I certainly think that interesting developments are taking place today um, in relation to the use of the language of human rights to contest economic inequality, for example. But we also see other interesting dynamics on the other side. For instance, um, US Secretary of State Pompeo's Commission on Unalienable Rights, which has recently put out a report which really seeks to reorient or to spell out the Trump administration's position on human rights. Um, And interestingly, given it was largely written by um, Marianne Glendon, the established human conservative human rights scholar, it's a much more serious engagement with the language and history of human rights that one would expect probably from the Trump administration. But it's in many ways an attempt to return to a conception that is much more like the conception that the neoliberal thinkers spelled out. So I think that there's certainly a battle over human rights today, but I think that there's also a question about the possibility of conceptualising other political languages and ways to think about the prevalent crises of our time. And I think that there's a real debate and discussion to be had about whether human rights can be freed of this neoliberal inheritance and whether human rights is the adequate language to be thinking about how to transform our societies today. And your book certainly, I think, is ushering in that debate um, very strongly. So Jessica, thank you so much for being here. This has been a fascinating discussion. Before we let you go, could we get a quick snapshot almost of what you're currently working on? Sure. Look, I'll be very brief, but um, I talk in this book about the way that the neoliberals revived an argument for the the market as a source of peace. Um, as opposed to simply seeing the market as a more efficient economic mechanism for distributing goods and services. So I'm continuing to work on this sort of the neoliberal argument for the pacifying virtues of the market and looking at the way that neoliberal thinkers revived as sort of an argument, the so-called do-commerce thesis that Albert Hirschman uh, identified about why the market was supposedly uh, a means of moving away from the violent passions of politics and enabling consensual, mutually beneficial forms of cool relations between people. So I'm continuing to work on that and also to look at the forms of violence that this licensed. So when you see commerce is a source of peace, what forms of violence are you prepared to license in order to secure commerce and therefore to secure this peace? So that's a bigger long-term project, but that's where I am now. That sounds fascinating. And I hope that we might be able to have you back on the, the podcast to talk about it in the future. The book is Morals of the Market, Human Rights and the Rise of Neoliberalism by Jessica White, published by Verso in 2019. Jessica, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a real pleasure. Thank you.